welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, I will interview co-host Kevin King. What? Again with the bro talk? Apologies to everyone in our audience, but look on the bright side. You can use this time again to catch up on old Webster episodes. If you do stick around, we'll talk about the etiology of substance use and substance use disorders, examining training and education of research methods through an implementation science lens, and before you turn off the podcast, just know at the end I'm going to quiz Kevin on his knowledge of Star Wars. I think you'll find today's show to be everything you're looking for in a podcast. Without further ado, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to that Implementation Science Podcast. I am your host, Mike Pullman, and unfortunately, we do not have a co-host today. I'm very happy to be here today with Kevin King, who is a professor of child clinical psychology at the University of Washington. He earned his PhD from the University of Arizona in 2007. His substantive work focuses on how cognitive and emotional aspects of self-regulation develop across adolescence, and how self-regulation is a determinant of problematic alcohol and drug use. His methodological research focuses on how to improve the quality of data analysis in the psychological sciences. So good to have you here today, Kevin. Are you feeling a little bit nervous about being on, on, a, on a podcast? You know, I was until you got where I went to graduate school wrong. And now I just feel like there is, you know, uh, the bar has been set low enough. So Arizona State University, I, I graduated from America's number one party school, um, in 2007. I, it's common confusion between this Arizona State and University of Arizona. Um, How did you find yourself here? I'd love to hear about your, your career trajectory. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it starts back when I was a little kid. And get, I remember getting a, as a gift one time, maybe from like a Smithsonian gift shop. Um, I grew up around the Washington, D.C. And, and suburban Maryland. And every summer we'd get to go down to the Smithsonian. And I, I really feel like it's only as an adult that I've appreciated how amazing the access to the, you know, national museums, they're all, you know, uh, that there are in Washington, DC, they're all free. And, you know, the museum of, uh, natural history, the museum of American history, the Smithsonian itself, you know, we could just go, we go on field trips, we'd go in, in the summers. And my favorite was always the museum of natural history. They had the giant, um, elephant that you see when you walk in the, in the big rotunda, they had dinosaur bones, and I was just always fascinated with learning about the natural world. And I remember getting a gift, I, I think, and I think from the Smithsonian of different rocks. It was just this box with a bunch of different examples of rocks. And they were like glued to the box. And I sort of said what each of them was. There was like soapstone. And I, I remember, uh, I think the only one I, either I can remember is fool's gold, which I forget exactly what it's called. But it just, you know, I, I remember looking at that stuff and thinking, man, I would love to be a scientist. I want to learn things. I want to discover things. You know, I was the kind of kid who would read the encyclopedia um, in our house when when I was bored. Um, and I'd like to make a joke and say we didn't have a lot of books and all we had was one, you know, 1982 encyclopedia. But we did have lots of books and I was just always drawn to that kind of stuff. And, and as I grew up, I started getting a... Um, more of an interest in helping professions. 
Um, so you know, one of my goals in high school was I had this grand vision. I don't know why, but I had this grand vision of uh, becoming a rural um, family medicine doctor. It was, you know, for a long time, that was my goal. And then I went to college and realized I was not strong in chemistry um, and uh, that maybe the sort of the competitiveness of the medicine pre-med track was not necessarily for me. Um, so at the University of North Carolina, I started studying biology because, uh, again, I was um, interested in sort of like natural world science stuff. Um, and also that was supposed to be a good pre-med major. But I sort of started souring on that path just because of my some encounters in class. I also think I was probably not mature enough to realize that I should really actually study and put in effort to try to get good grades in those courses. And so I took an intro to a psychology course and was just captivated. I, it was you know, um, one, I got really good grades. I was like, well, yeah, I can do this. Much easier, it sounds like. Much than easier. Yeah, exactly yeah by orders of magnitude than my honors chemistry class that I got a, a C minus in, I think. And then I just found myself really being engaged in psychology and thinking, you know, maybe this is a thing for me. So I decided to, f I, I decided, and, and it was consistent with other things I was doing. I was, you know, I was a peer counselor in high school. I was a camp counselor. Uh, resident assistants, so a lot of sort of like, you know, therapeutic or paratherapeutic um, roles that I had. And so I finally decided, I think somewhere in the you know, middle of my psychology major that, hey, maybe I'm going to aim for clinical psychology and, and I'll go for a clinical psych PhD. And again, that was all with the uh, end of being a therapist and, uh, you know, learning interventions and doing them. And then I took a course from a brand new professor at the University of North Carolina named Andrea Hassan. And she taught a course on developmental psychopathology, and I was just completely captivated. It was this course about how people, uh, how typical development can, um, and factors related to typical development like temperament or personality and family factors and environments, how that can influence how psychological disorders develop in uh, children and adolescents and young adults. And that, that course was, it was really rigorous. It was really tough. She was a really tough grader, especially on our writing, but I was really fascinated. And at some point during the class, she asked for volunteers. She said, look, I'm doing a research project. If you're interested in learning about research, uh, I'd be thrilled to have more undergraduate volunteers. And I went into a meeting with her to, to volunteer to be a research assistant. And I, I, I've never quite asked her why this happened, but I walked out um, uh, having agreed to do an honors thesis with her. Um, I think it was probably that I was just asking so many questions she needed to get me out of there. And she just said, how about we just do an honors thesis and you can, you can get out. <laughs> maybe she was and trying to scare you away. Maybe she was. Um, and we had to actually petition because my GPA was too low. We had to petition with the college to let them give me permission. Oh, wow. I was all, I also like started the, the honors thesis process a semester late. Um, I started sort of at the end of my junior year. So I spent my, 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 I had to agree with her. Like I would get the proposal written by the end of the summer. So I spent the summer in the library, like sweating my butt off, making copy after copy after copy of journals, because that's what we had to do back in the late nineties was actually photocopy, actual journal articles. Yeah. And that thesis was on uh, substance use in adolescents and young adults. And I, my thesis, I think it was on peer influences. And we were looking at some stuff about, we didn't find anything and the analysis were total crap. But I, you know, I learned about statistical analysis. I learned about, actually learned a little bit about regression and moderation and regression in my honors thesis and had a great time. And, and through doing that process, I, I realized, oh man, this data collection and data analysis thing is fun. We can learn things about the world 
by asking people to, um, you know, rate numbers on a survey. And that really, you know, and I just thought, you know, at the, at the time I was probably overly naive about how good we can <laughs> learn things, but there was just something amazing about turning ideas and words we have into numbers and doing magic with them and then getting ideas about the world out from there. Um, and I just, I found myself able to sit in front of a computer and, um, you know, do the data analysis and even data cleaning, I found really sort of mesmerizing and, you know, you get in this like flow state when you're doing it. And so I, I, I had a, you know, I had a really successful, fun honors project, successful and fun as in like, it was engaging. It was enjoyable. We didn't find anything. It was probably in the end, not a great, you know, research product, but it was a great experience. And I learned a lot. And so after a gap year where I, I spent time working with um, uh, children in foster care in Alaska and a volunteer, like an AmeriCorps type position, um, during that year, I applied to graduate school and um, uh, eventually um, accepted a position at Arizona State University um, with Lori Chasson, who happened to have trained Andrea, <laughs> my undergraduate mentor. And there I followed my research on adolescent substance use um, and trained for seven years um, as a clinical psychologist um, at Arizona State. And while I was at ASU, I fell in love with quantitative analysis. Um, I sort of continued this sort of gradual path towards being a researcher and away from a full-time emphasis on um on being a clinician. Um, so there I took sort of a stat class after stat class after stats class and just found myself again, just being sort of falling in love with the ways that we can learn about the world and answer increasingly complicated questions about how people grow and change over time and how that growth and change can, you know, lead to or influence the development of, um, uh, substance use, um, and I sort of found myself increasingly focusing on on substance use, sort of merging this developmental psychopathology um, background with an emphasis on substance use. So I graduated in 2007. I did an internship at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And during that year, I applied uh, for faculty jobs because I thought, well, why not? I'll just give it a shot. And I got extraordinarily lucky to have been offered a position at the University of Washington. Um, I'm pretty convinced that all their other candidates accepted jobs elsewhere. And I was sort of the last person standing, but I don't, I've never actually confirmed that. I don't really want to know. Uh, and I've been at UW uh, studying substance use ever since that I feel like that's probably a long enough answer. So I'll sort of pause there. Yeah. It's been so nice having you on the show and uh, yeah. I think that's all the time we have for today. So that's fantastic. I hope uh, I can look forward to writing my own out of office message. So thanks. That was really fun. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was originally a journalism major and uh, got out of that when I discovered that I hated interviewing people and I was terrible at it. So there's a bit of an irony that we're running this podcast now. Yeah. I was also sort of <laughs> reflecting on when you were talking about the um, finding journal articles and having to make copies of them for your mentor. I, I've done a lot of that or even did yeah. that, you know, when, and I would remember, I remember having to go from different copy room to different copy room on each level of the library because there wasn't a journal, you know, bound uh, collection of journal articles in the stacks because somebody else had copied oh, it. Oh, yes. So, so you have to dig to through it, to yeah. find it. And I just remember information felt like it was so much more valuable back then. When you would right. copy it, I remember I would read it uh, intensely. And now information is so freely available. Do you feel like it's cheapened information at all? I, well, I mean, the you know, one thing I've learned over the last few years is, you know, you, you'll see often in grant proposals or papers, people will create 
a chart that says, oh, interest in topic XYZ has increased exponentially over the years. And it turns out one of the things you need to do with those charts is correct them for the average or typical publication rate in a field because all journal articles, they're the number of journals and the number of journal articles that people are producing is increasing also at a logarithmic or geometric rate over time. So, I mean, I do think it, you know, I, I think about that sometimes. I also though, you know, I balance that with thinking about what we have learned about how replicable or not replicable psychological science is. Cause I remember that reverence too. I remember the first time I met, Susan Ennett, it was, who was a researcher at the University of North Carolina. And I had read a bunch of her work. I think probably the most prominent for I had read some of her work on DARE. So she was one of the early researchers to point out the DARE, drug abuse resistance education, for those of you um, who did not go through that in high school or, or middle school. She was one of the first people to point out, hey, it doesn't look like DARE actually works. And we're investing a ton of money in putting police in schools to teach kids about drugs that, you know, for a program that... <laughs> probably doesn't actually work and maybe makes it things a little bit worse for kids. And she was actually threatened with lawsuits for, um, for her research on dare, for her meta-analyses on dare. Um, And I remember the first time I met Susan and I was so nervous and shaking. I, here's this person I'd I'd read her research. It felt like, you know, meeting a famous book author, you know, and now I realize she was just, you know, another scientist schlub like me. But as I think about that sort of power of the written word, and I also balance it with thinking about, man, we've learned a lot about how we can mislead ourselves hmm. in research over time. So we, you know, most certainly we were placing probably too much emphasis on the power of those words. And I wonder how much of that research, you know, would hold up today. How much of it is really replicable? How much mm-hmm. of it is really sort of solid? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, on the one hand, maybe it's more solid because there was just less of it, and maybe people were more slower and more rigorous. But on the other hand, you know, I don't know, man. People have always been incentivized to publish as much as they can. So, yeah. sorry, I'm both like hopeful and cynical at the same time. I uh, know. I mean, this is total conjecture, but I do think the the field of implementation science, when it originally started, was really focused on the implementation of evidence-based practices. So there was this kind of very positive understanding, like, okay, we have this program that works and we know it definitely works. Mm-hmm. And now let's study the factors that were related to its uptake or not. And, you know, this was 15, 20 years ago before all articles were PDFs and instantly available on, at the click of a button. Mm-hmm. And now again, information has kind of cheapened somewhat. I wonder what influence that's had on implementation science. I do hear people talking less about sort of evidence-based practices mm-hmm. and more about just like implementation of a program or idea, whether it's evidence-based or not. Right. Um, and a growing recognition that evidence is all probabilistic and right. that as we have increasing journal articles were having increasing evidence for that probabilistic notion, like a nice distribution of effect sizes. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to think about. Oh, I am curious, so you're not an implementation scientist. I uh, asked you to be part of this podcast because I really enjoy hanging out with you and you have a really great brain and think about things. And we have done some implementation science work in the past. Yeah. Um, I'm really kind of curious uh, if you could talk a little bit about ways that you, that implementation science has influenced your work. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't. I really benefited <laughs> not at all from it. Um, I mean, I, I would say like, I mean, like the, the true answer is no, it, it's done nothing for me. And I, and the reason is that my research is almost entirely on the etiology of substance use uh, and substance use disorder. So I, you know, the core of my research question, and I'll keep this brief, I promise. <laughs> the core of my research question is how come most 
teenagers, young adults, most people, at least in the United States, try drugs and alcohol. You know, most people try alcohol. I believe a majority of people try marijuana at some point in their lives. Lots of people suffer from alcohol and, and drug use. You know, alcohol is a leading attributable cause of death um, among adults. Um, you know, alcohol and drug use disorders contribute to massive economic costs in terms of lost productivity and emotional costs and cancers in people. And at the same time, you know, we have this thing where like most people try these things, most people don't end up having problems from alcohol um, or, or drugs, especially marijuana. That's where I focus at least. You know, so we have these things that are pitched as addictive drugs. We have these stories from the National Institutes of Health that addiction is a brain disease. Well, how come most people don't catch this brain disease? What what differentiates people over development in terms of people who are, are, are liable and at risk to develop a substance use disorder and people who are not? Are there things we can identify early on to predict that risk? And also, how, just, how do we understand the progression from uh, early uh, use to a substance use disorder that somebody ends up asking for, asking or needing treatment for. Uh, because the other thing is that lots of people, like, uh, you know, I'm at least convinced that the people who end up asking for treatment are different from the people that you see in epidemiological surveys who might meet, technically meet the criterion for a disorder. So I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in nothing about treatment. I just never, it's never been a focus of mine. I don't feel like I have strong expertise in it, at least in research studies on treatment. So that's why I say, no, I, I've been not at all influenced in implementation. But on the other hand, I'm completely changed a, as a, a scientist and as a sort of evaluator of research in terms of implementation. So in my own research, I, for example, a lot of my research in the last, I would say, uh, five five years or so has used ecological momentary assessment. We send people cell phone surveys a lot, you know, multiple times a day. Uh, we're sort of like the annoying uh, annoying friend that's like constantly texting you all day. How are you thinking? How are you feeling? What are you doing? How are you thinking? How are you feeling? What are you doing? And every once in a while, like, hey, have you been drinking lately? And we try, we do research with with that kind of stuff. And one of the things I've thought about from an implement, implementation perspective is, well, what do I tell a clinician? Clinician, what what could a clinician do with the work that we do? And you know, the first answer is probably nothing because all of our findings are tentative and we don't know. But I could say, look, if you're a clinician and you're interested in using the findings that we have from our research. You could ask your patient, and, and frankly, lots of people do. They already use DBT diary cards, or they have people do thought records. Ask somebody to write down what they're thinking, feeling, and doing once a day, every day for a week, and track it. Right. So my research is on self-regulation. So you could ask people to write down how much do you feel like you're acting on impulse uh, right now, and when they're in a moment of high acting on a, you know acting on impulse, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on? Have them track that for a week or two. Um, and come back and look at those situations and say, okay, can we identify a high-risk situation where somebody might be at risk for, um, you know, that my research might point to, where somebody might be at risk for doing something that they sort of would later regret. That's a lot of, you know, what I focus on is like acting on impulse and regretting it later. So I think about my study design as how could you actually, you know, apply my results? So I've avoided more technological solutions like um, physiological tracking or, transdermal sensing of alcohol, because I, I at believe at least in part, if the scientific question doesn't beg for those technological solutions, I want one that somebody could immediately take my research and put it into practice, at least in a modified way. Um, I also think about that, how implementation is important for my other line of research, which is on how do we get people to use methods and science better? 
And so, uh, you know, I, I, there's been in the last 10 years, there's been a revolution in thinking about how do we improve the transparency and replicability and credibility of our science? And I, I, my view on a lot of those efforts is that they're completely missing the implementation part. That they're think most of the research uh, has been like let's write more articles and give people more trainings to, you know, help them do better at methods. And I just the lessons I've learned from hanging around implementation scientists like, hey, that is not going to cut it. And we need to think more systematically and structurally, and frankly, more carefully. Um, to to really ch make a change in, in the field. And I guess the final way, and again, uh, I guess you should have known this, but you're getting another long-winded answer. Um, and I apologize. I think, you know, uh, uh, the final way is how I review other people's research. When I review grants that are focused on treatment at um, NIH grant review committees, or when I review research papers, I'm always thinking about okay, what are the barriers for implementation? How is this solution implementable? Is this something that we can actually, you know, has a hope of being translated, if not now at some point, into real world interventions? And if I see, you know, what I see are critical hangups in, in an intervention, or if somebody's doing implementation, but, uh, uh, but not measuring how the implementation goes, that's something I'm sort of not, I'm going to be calling out in people's research. So, so I sort of see it as pervasively shifting my worldview uh, about how we do research and then ultimately also how we train students uh, in, in clinical psychology programs. Yeah, I don't know that we've, uh, that the field of implementation science, aside from, I think, the paper that uh, you led um, that we'll put in the, the show notes, has done a lot of thinking in terms of how it, um, how it disseminates and implements its own information or how certain fields like methodology and analysis can do that better. I know in that paper, you had some really clear um, recommendations for the field that I thought were pretty interesting. Uh, can you share some of those with the with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, so the background of this paper um, w was around hanging around a bunch of impl implementation scientists and thinking and, and also getting really caught up in the credibility replicability revolution in, in, um, in psychology. So my own, you know, my early, early research was um, when I first got to UW was focusing on uh, impulsivity and understanding how impulsivity is related to substance use. And one of the uh, things I noticed was a lot of people using these impulsivity tasks, like a Stroop task uh, or um, a go, no-go task in, in this kind of research. And they were saying, well, this is this, a way of characterizing, objectively characterizing impulsivity because you're getting people to do a computer task. And so I thought, this is great. So I went out and collected uh, a thousand participants um, on a bunch of uh, what were you know, pitched to me as standardized impulsivity tasks. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do this, get a multi-method measure of impulsivity, and we're going to sort of do some factor analyses and show how these things are related and show how it's related to risk for substance use. And I just found jack squat. And I would start well, bringing this I up hope, to... I hope what you did then is you continued to analyze all sorts of research questions that you didn't ask in the first place and then present that those results as if that was your original plan. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And probably published a lot with that. Yeah. So. I have never published those data. I have a paper in the works, but I've had a paper in the works for five years or actually more than that, trying to do something with those data. Um, and, and I would start to go, you know, to conferences and ask people, hey, you're presenting on these impulsivity tasks and you're saying they have these findings, but I've tried to do the same thing and I just can't get it to work. What am I doing wrong here? And I would just get shot down and dismissed over and over. And then I start hearing about this 
problems with replicability in other areas of psychology. And it instantly hit me that, oh yeah, oh yeah, we have the same problem and I've encountered this. So I think, you know, that sort of got me to be really passionate about replicability and open science. And as I started sort of maturing in the field and and using more and more um, quantitative methods um, in the field and then teaching quantitative methods, I, you, you also start to see this implementation problem where there's just a lot of applications of quantitative methods that on the face of it, like literally reading the paper, you can't, you know, they did something wrong, right? Yeah. You can tell they're misusing model fit indices um, or they're, you know, their P like there's research that shows that like 10% of P values in published literature are just wrong. Um, and there's always somehow a bias, consistently a bias towards um, significant P values. Now, you know, sometimes that's just like a rounding error, mm -hmm. but there's, you know, the, the, it seems problematic that there's uh, evidence across sort of any methodological area you can look at that people misapply and don't understand and misreport statistical analyses. And so as I sort of was noticing that more and more, and as I was um, learning more about implementation science, I started realizing, hey, wait, these are parallel issues, right? We, you know, the way I thought about it, at least at the time was implementation science is saying, hey, we have these evidence-based practices. They're not making it into the field. What do we need to understand and do differently to make things you know, get these evidence-based practices into the field. And to me, so I, so I wrote this paper for a special issue on uh, in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology um, called Using Implementation Science to Close the Gap Between the Optical and Typical Practice of Quantitative Methods in Clinical Science. And I actually thought of this paper as even broader, as saying, look, we have, you know, we have this problem in science where we're our overall methodology is not replicable. We are, you know, there's p-hacking, there's harking, um, there, there's poor application of methods. There's just a giant gap between what we say we're doing and what we actually do in our research. And there are evidence-based, you know, practices like methodological innovations that don't make it into practice or they make it ever, ever so slowly. And then once they actually make it into practice, people just use them as a as sort of a rule of thumb or heuristic and don't actually think deeply about them. And what people were doing at the time was writing reviews and saying, hey, you're doing it all wrong. You should do it this way. They're writing tutorials and say, here's how you do it better. And I just kept thinking, or they offer workshops. Man, I got to tell you, there's a lot of money to be made in offering statistical training and sure. analysis workshops, just tremendous amounts of money. And I, I kept thinking from hanging around you and hanging around Aaron Lyon and Shannon Dorsey, what I would hear from you all, which is, oh yeah, that's called the train and hope model. You give somebody a workshop and you hope they go out in the world and do it better. Or we know that like writing papers doesn't change people's behaviors. And, and I, you know, frankly, I knew that from my own clinical training and motivational interviewing that people, even when people know what to do, there's lots of reasons, you know, to make a sort of behavior change. There's lots of reasons why people don't ultimately change their behavior. And so I sort of pulled all those threads together and wrote this paper um, uh, along with you and Aaron Lyon and Shannon Dorsey and Kara Lewis um, arguing people that- people who just happened to have been folks that we have interviewed on, the, yeah. Yeah, on that implementation just, science podcast. Just conveniently, our season one roster of guests. P um, less than 0.03 for that. Yeah, and I would say we also purposefully excluded Brian Weiner from that list because he was just too popular and we did not want to bring him on. So sorry, Brian. So yeah, I, I sort of tried to pull together this idea that like, hey, we have a methodological implementation problem in the field. 
And maybe we could take some lessons from implementation science to actually improve them. Um, so sorry, that's the whole sort of background uh, of the paper. I'd actually have to look at the paper to see <laughs> what we ultimately recommended. But I think a lot of it was about thinking about structural problems, was stop relying on individuals, stop relying on training and hoping, and start rewarding um, one, rewarding methodological research that's not just about coming up with new methods, but is actually about trying to find ways to effectively implement them, mm-hmm. to rethink you know, graduate training um, in ways that infuses methodological research um, throughout the curriculum. I think there's often this divide in people's heads between like, oh, I'm not a methodologist. I'm just a substantive person. But if you're a substantive person without sufficient methodological, methodological training, you can't even be a substantive person. Because how can you evaluate the research as it's written when you just trust that the authors did everything right? When we know that you can't trust that people did everything mm-hmm. right. Um, and even if people are doing everything right, how how can you evaluate the literature without appropriate caveats of understanding, well, they took this methodological position and they mm-hmm. did this sort of approach at this. How do we know how that compares to other you know, methodological approaches? For example... Um, using like ecological momentary assessment versus retrospective self-report. Both of those provide valuable perspectives, but if you don't have the methodological appreciation to understand what they can provide, you're going to end up conflating the two and sort of learning less than you can. Um, You know, so I I feel like the the argument was to think um, think about structural and systemic factors and sort of use the implementation science frameworks that that are existing to understand why um, it, it, certain methods get adopted and why why others don't. And and to sort of I, mostly it was hopefully a call for a lot more research on this, which has not unfortunately happened. Partly because I couldn't get funding for it um, with a few sort of attempts that I had, and I'm not sure anybody's really taken up the charge to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's such an interesting question around this sort of systemic reasons why. I mean, there. I think one of the things that people jump to is, um, you know, research uh, malfeasance or, uh, you know, cheating. And while that happens, I think probably that's a pretty small proportion of folks mm-hmm. for whom that's the case. And I think some of these systemic issues actually that we discussed recently are really they create unintended consequences yeah. where ripple effects, if you will. Being, yeah. People were being rewarded again for, for um, papers published and you're much more likely to get a paper published to figure out that P value. And then there's just like the standard innovation bias or bias mm-hmm. that people have in their own work. They believe that it works. They believe there's a relationship there. And I think there's some of it is an unintended consequence of really what's kind of a arbitrary line in the stand of P is less than 0.05. And then people, work on different arbitrary lines in the sands rather than really thinking about this as a probabilistic continuum, oftentimes also without the full understanding of what a p-value even really means. So it's a, it, these are complex issues and, and people do really struggle with them and they struggle with their application. I really liked what you had to say about ensuring that folks have um, sufficient methodological expertise that they can at least judge the literature, literature base mm-hmm. uh, when they're when they're doing their own research. Yeah. I, you know, I think uh, in my experience, people are desperate for stronger methodological training and they just don't know where to get it. They don't know how to keep up with what's in the literature. And frankly, the methodologists aren't helping yeah. because they're they're also focused on and biased towards innovation and putting out a new method. And there's not enough of them 
who are really the connectors, who are building tools that make it easier for people to do things well. That's why some of the research that my students have done, like Connor McCabe and Dale Kim and Max Halverson um, and others, you know, a lot of our, our methodological work has focused on building like shiny apps to do better, you know, visualization of moderation, for example, um, or writing tutorials like, you know, Jonas Dora has a tutorial um, that we're working on that shows how to do Bayesian multi-level modeling. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, I'm not convinced that tools and, and tutorials are the only way to go, but I'm convinced that most people don't do things as well as they could because they they would if they had the tools and support. Um, but ultimately, they, you know, even if you care, you have to be in a lab in an environment that rewards that. You have to have a PI or a let, you know, um, or colleagues that are interested in that. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've proposed, hey, we should think about this more complicated way. And people are just like, no, I don't want to do that. Or like, there's just not support in the research group for it. And you just can't, you know, even if people sort of want to, it feels like an extra huge bar um, mm -hmm. to do this stuff. So yeah, I, I fully agree. It's, you know, we need to work on making things more accessible. We need to have more in-person, you know, coaching, I think we need a lot of. Um, and it's just, it's just not there. Well, I see how you deftly sidestepped the debate of how to pronounce uh, primer versus primer by calling it a tutorial. So that was very, very, um, <laughs> very adept. Um, so we talked earlier a little bit about some of the work that you're doing substantively. Why don't we revisit, revisit that a little bit? Uh, what are you currently working on substantively? Give us, uh, give us some more information about that. Yeah. So uh, I think along this long thread of my research has been about trying to understand the roots of uh, the development of substance use disorders. And one of the prominent theories of substance use disorder is the, what people call the affect regulation pathway. So there's this idea um, that some people at least, uh, this goes back to the sort of the 1950s, um, that some people develop uh, substance use disorders. It's, this theory theorizing started with alcohol use disorders, um, but then has sort of been generalized to other substance use disorders that they emerge from people's desire to regulate their emotions and they use substances to regulate their emotions. Um, and uh, there's a, tr you know, with alcohol, for example, there's a tremendous amount of research uh, in the lab that suggests that when people drink alcohol, they feel more relaxed and calm, that there's uh, people self-report that one of the reasons why some people drink um, is that it helps them feel relaxed. It helps them when they're cheer them up when they're in a bad mood. It, uh, you know, um, there's longitudinal research that suggests that people who report, you know, that kind of uh, those substance use motives um, uh, drink more uh, and maybe have some higher risk of developing substance use problems over time. And I think it comes from clinical wisdom and clinical lore um, where people in treatment for substance use disorders, especially alcohol use disorders, say and have this belief that they, you know, drink to regulate their affect. But there's a missing piece of this puzzle that when you actually follow people in near real time, so at a daily level, you have them fill out these ecological momentary assessment surveys or daily diary surveys. There doesn't seem to be a link between daily negative mood or negative emotions and later drinking. Um, in fact, people who retrospectively report that they drink for coping motive reasons do drink more and they're, they're more likely to drink and they drink more, even if you measure it at the daily level. So it's not just some retrospective report bias, but what we can't see is this within person link between how people feel and what they end up doing later drinking wise, which is especially puzzling because uh, again, not only do lab studies show that 
drinking makes people feel sort of less negative mood and more positive moods, which is probably like a no duh, but you can make people upset in a lab. You can induce negative affect and they're more likely to drink in a free drinking paradigm later. And, and, you know, I have, I don't have any reason to think those findings are not replicable. So we have this weird thing where like, there's all this converging evidence for negative affect regulation, except when you ask people what's going on in their daily lives. And so a lot of my research lately has been trying to understand uh, the basics of behavior and emotion regulation in people's daily lives and understanding gaps between people's narrative understanding of why they do what they do. So we have some research, for example, um, that shows that people who say they often act on impulse um, in response to negative emotions, which is sort of a broad generalization of this affect regulation by drinking and, and by substance use, that they don't seem to exhibit that behavior in real life. Although we're working on some replications of that now with larger samples, trying to see if maybe the effect was there, but it was just smaller than we thought. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, that finding has been replicated by other research groups too. So there's this idea that people have one narrative maybe about their lives that they carry with them that is meaningful and important, but that may not reflect their average daily experience. Maybe it reflects some other aspect of their average daily of their experiences, but not sort of what they're like typically. And we've been looking at at that in substance use um, too. So for example, my postdoctoral colleague, Jonas Dora, led this amazing, amazing meta-analysis where we we wanted to look at this affect regulation hypotheses um, in diary and ecological momentary assessment, sort of daily life data. And so we you know, we first thought, well, let's do a meta-analysis and let's take published studies. But then we realized, well, these are clustered data. Uh, most of the pre- people are either predicting whether or not people drank or how many drinks they, they drank, and they're not meta-analytic techniques to um, sort of uh, synthesize regression coefficients for like logistic multi-level regression or negative binomial regression. Plus, everybody analyzed their data different any differently anyway, so we it's like really really difficult to do that. Um, although, fortunately, most of the studies were structured really really similarly, and they use really similar instruments, so we actually had a lot of harmony there. And part of the goal of this, by the way, was driven by the, this curious fact that in in everybody's introductions, they would talk about affect regulation, and they would always say the findings are actually really mixed in, in ecological momentary assessment or daily life research. But they people would always report null findings. And in fact, if you sort of tabulate the studies, it was very clear that the findings were on average null. Um, but sometimes people would break out an interaction, you know, mm-hmm. that was just barely significant. If you squint it, you know, turn it 90 degrees, you know, and you say, oh, yeah, the, the finding is there, but only for these people in these situations. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we thought, well, okay, we can't synthesize the data. And I just said to Jonas, sort of almost offhand, well, let's just let's just ask people for the data and do it ourselves. And we ha- we did that, and we got this amazing response from the alcohol research community. We asked something like seventy to seventy-five research groups about their data sets. Um, I'm getting some of these numbers sort of uh, maybe it was like fifty to fifty-five research groups for about sixty to seventy seventy-five data sets. And almost everybody said yes. You know, we had a few people who said, I would love to share my data, but my university has really stringent data sharing requirements and it's going to take a year. And we said, yeah, no, no worries. There were others that said, well, I moved and, you know, um, I don't have access to the data anymore. And my PI retired, you know, these are from some of these older studies. Um, I did have one person say they didn't want to share their data with me because I had been rude to them before and they just didn't (laughs) like me. Um, But aside from that, 
I think you need to name that person on the podcast. I am absolutely not going to name that person because I will absolutely just take their <laughs> word that I was Brian a jerk to them. Yeah, sorry, Brian. Um, uh, you know, we, um, but uh, otherwise, we had almost universal acceptance from these authors, um, and so we, we, we got all of their data. We had, we invited everybody who wanted to be to be on the paper. Um, we did a massive pre-registration where we pre-registered all aspects of what we're going to do with these meta-analyses. Um, and indeed, we found two things, I think. There was a remarkable consistency across studies. So we found almost no heterogeneity in effects. Uh, universally, across all the studies, there was no relation between how people felt at the daily level and whether or not they were likely to drink or how much they drank later that day. Just It just wasn't there. And on the, on the other hand, we did find a really robust and consistent association between people feeling good on days before. And this is true if you even look before people started drinking, if you could sort of separate the drinking occasion from, from the emotions. And you know, since then, uh, I'd like to say we just settled that issue and everybody's like, okay, well, this affect regulation thing isn't true. But of course, when you you know uh, show a null finding, everybody says, "Well, you got to do it differently." You, should, you know, even people who are in on the pre-registration would say, "Like, well, we, this wasn't right. The affect regulation is really this, this, and this." So, what we've been pursuing since then is a series of experimental studies and other EMA studies where we're trying to sort of knock off other variants of this hypothesis. Um, so we have a grant that is, um, we just got a really good score on from NIAAA, where what we're proposing is to analyze, um, collect a new data set on affect and drinking and analyze it sort of every which way but loose. The idea is we're going to analyze it in what's called a multiverse analysis. We're going to collect data, um, daily affect and daily substance use from a large sample of people. And we're going to analyze it in over a thousand different ways. And the idea, and then you, you know, this idea with a multiverse analysis is, is you construct a curve of effects and you can sort of see, okay, is there on average, is there um, evidence for this effect? And if there, if there is, what are the sort of design or analytic factors that are driving the presence or absence uh, of that effect? So we, uh, it's been really fun. And I think it's been a both methodological challenge and also a really interesting sort of theoretical theoretical challenge for the field trying to think about like we believe this so strongly and yet this one critical place you know we can't find evidence for so is it that it's not true or we just never designed the study in the right way to find the way that it is true mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i've never heard of this meta uh multiverse yeah. analysis is kind of an interesting way to sort of do all the possible post hoc or other research team mm -hmm. analyses of your data sets, like all the different approaches that you may take and then plotting those out to get sort of an average effect. That's exactly what it is. And you know, yeah. you take you take one research question uh -huh. and you think about all the choices you could make, right? So yeah. inclusion yeah. of covariates, you know, the the one caveat is it has to have the same ultimate estimate. So it has to all be an odds ratio or a, you know, a regression coefficient or a correlation. Think about outliers. You think about what, how you measure the constructs and you do all those analyses, you plot them, and then you run a permutation test where you do the same analyses, but where you shuffle the data so that you know that whatever correlation is in the data, whatever effect is in the data is completely generated at random. So you know that you've proved the null effect, then you can compare the frequency of significant findings in your permutation data, um, and you, you know, do that 500 times. Like, how often do you get, you know, X number of, you know, let's say 20% of the findings are significant in your observed data set? If your permutations test says, oh, we, you know, when we shuffle the data, we only see that 
5% of, of the ways we do it are significant, you can sort of be pretty confident that the, um, you know, your 20% finding is n- not just because, you know, you randomly are lucking into some findings. Mm-hmm. So it sort of, it also gives you a sense the way we think about it, it gives you a sense of what the literature is showing in general, right? Because if you get, if you have a, if you, your evidence suggests, well, analyzing it, our multiverse analysis says that, you know, there's this, you get this effect 10% of the time and the average effect is, you know, whatever, 0.10. And you say, well, if we shuffle the data randomly, so we know the null hypothesis is true. And that's about what we get. We get 10% of the time. And that sort of suggests that, the, you know, whatever, when you do see a significant effect in the literature where people only did it one way, that maybe we're sort of not, shouldn't be so confident in that finding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so interesting. It reminds me of that paper, one of my favorite papers, Many Analysts, One Data Set, where yeah. they took 29 teams of with 61 uh, analysis and gave them all the same data set and the same research question. And they asked them to uh, answer that research question and they found... Um, tremendous variation. Uh, yeah, yeah tremendous, tremendous variation, variation of what people find yeah. and what they conclude. Yeah. Sometimes the effects were in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. Effect sizes ranging yeah. from 0.89 to 2.93. Yeah. Um, with 69% of the teams finding positive effects and 31% yeah. finding negative. And so that's yeah. fascinating. All right, so I took this quiz from GameSpot. They have an article titled The 25 Toughest Star Wars Trivia Questions. Oh, man. We've got some easier ones in here. We've got some harder ones in okay. here. Questions from you, and I'm going to be grading you on my own Star Wars-related scale. Uh, the first question is, and this is a fill-in-the-blank, uh, where was Luke Skywalker originally headed to pick up power converters? Oh, he was going to Tashi Station to pick up the power converters. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. You get that right. And so that you uh, get 66 number of orders for that. <laughs> Ooh, that one hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Second question. Second question. What odds does C3PO give uh, Han for successfully navigating the asteroid field? And if you don't know this off the top of your head, I can, I can give you multiple choice. Uh, it's the ballpark. Yeah, it's a ballpark of five or six million to one. But go ahead and give me the. the... Okay, so the answers are one thousand three hundred and twenty-nine to one, three thousand seven hundred and twenty to one, five million two hundred and twenty-three thousand to one, or the probability is so low that it can't be calculated. No, it's the five million to one. No, I'm it's three thousand. Three thousand seven hundred and twenty oh, to one. Uh, unfortunately, you only get one Death Star out of one okay. to three Death Stars for that answer. Um, well, shouldn't it be one? It's like one Death Star, one like a half Death Star is still under construction, and then a Star Killer base, which is like a sort of pseudo Death Star retcon. Terrible. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and give you an yeah. extra Death Star for that okay. for that Excellent. Yeah, I do have a bonus <laughs> question for the C3PO okay. uh, Han answer. So, true or false? You should always tell Han the odds. Never tell him the odds. Okay. Okay. False. Good. All right. So extra bonus point for that extra Death Star. Now you're up to three Death Stars. Fantastic. Uh, another, I think, easy one. Now we're going to launch into some harder ones here. Uh, what does AT-AT stand for? Oh, it's an all-terrain attack transport, I believe. Oh, so close. close. All-terrain 
Armored transport. Armored transport. Oh, man. Uh, I'm only going to give you 72% of the 93% possible of Rotten, rotten Tomatoes okay. score. And uh, trivia for our listeners, an ADAT is my white whale. That is the, um, the gift as a child that I always desired and never got until Mike Pullman about 10 years ago gave me a small toy ADAT, which is still at my desk uh, at work um, for my birthday. This is true. This is true. All right. Here's, I think, the harder questions, but we're going to see. What day is Wookiee Life Day, and where did we first learn about this holiday? Oh, man. So I... I'm just going to... I don't know the day. I'm going to say it's like June 4th, but hang on. Um, But we first learned about it in the 1978 Christmas special uh, for Star Wars, which was aired, and then uh, my understanding was George Lucas tried to bury it because it was so bad. It was essentially a late seventies variety style show um, that took the star Wars characters um, and had them all in a mission to get back to um, get back to Kashyyyk for life day. Um, and we first learned, we met um, Boba Fett for the first time. This is the very first, I think it was in a cartoon. Um, we, you meet Boba Fett um, before empire strikes back um, came and you also met um, Chewie's family. Who, I, man, they have really crazy names and I can't remember. But you basically learned that the Wookiee species is extraordinarily unattractive and yeah. very, very funny looking. Yeah, you know what? So I was going to give you four out of eight sequels for that, but actually I'm going to boost that to six out of eight because you did answer Kashik, which was one of the questions I had, but I removed because I <laughs> thought I wasn't sure. You know, wasn't sure how hard that would be. So that's excellent, man. You're really, really knocking them back here. You're definitely going to get me writing your out of office uh (laughs) fantastic i can't wait um okay uh here's another hard one but you did really well on that one oh the day the wookie life day is november 17th so you got that part right yeah i had no clue definitely from the star wars holiday special okay in what movie does the camera pan back up after the crawl in the opening credits when they're showing and describing Mm -hmm. you know describing the history there's only one movie where the camera pans up rather than down Are we talking all nine uh, of the sort of original series? We're not so. talking yeah, any of the other. Okay, because I was going to say Rogue One is. I actually believe they abandoned the. Um, I think Rogue One might have been the first one where there's no ship over it, right? Because the the trope is always there's a ship um, that they go off. I want to say I'm just going to guess off the top of my head, it's going to be episode three, Revenge of the Sith, where they go into the beginning of that, they go into sort of the battle over um, uh, Coruscant. Um, but oh. I'm not confident in this answer. I'm sorry. It's actually episode two, Attack of the Clones. For that one, you're going to get zero racist tropes. Oh, okay. Um, I'll take that. Speaking of which, as an aside, if folks are interested, there's a really fantastic podcast called The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. Uh, really, really wonderful. And they talk about the notion of of Jar Jar Binks being labeled as a racist trope and the origin of where um, Ahmed Best got the inspiration for um, for Jar Jar Binks and how it felt to him to um, sort of be accused of playing on racist tropes, given sort of the background, the personal background that he has. It, I, I thought it was great. It's a really great episode, uh, really great podcast series. Again, the redemption of Jar Jar Binks. Hey man, don't don't send people to other podcasts. We're just losing an audience here. <laughs> All right, last question. You're doing uh, you're doing super well. Uh, this one is Darth Vader's chest piece has some writing on it. What language is it in, and what does it translate to? And I can give you multiple choice if you need it. Well, 
I'm going to guess that it's in binary, which is um, similar to the language of moisture evaporators. Um, I don't know what it says. And uh, yep, maybe yep. that's wrong. I, I, the thing I recall is like it's a, a series of straight lines and circles. So I'm just assuming it's like ones and zeros in binary, but I don't actually know. Yeah. So here's your options. Uh, a, ancient Hebrew translates to, quote, his deeds will not be forgiven until he merits. B, ancient Egyptian translates to man cannot prevent darkness. C, Latin, translates to don't remove the toy packaging. Or, <laughs> or D, Gaelic, translates to all life is servitude. Oh, man. I'm going to go with, I can't even envision the writing, so I'm going to envision, I'm going to guess it's Hebrew. That's correct, and it translates to all, to all his deeds will not be forgiven. That gives you 1,138 George Lucas references. Ooh. So, um, man, I'm going to have to tally these up here. We've got. If I could recommend, use percent of maximum possible scoring. That is, that's what I sort of like to use. It's a classic paper by um, Cohen, Cohen, Aiken, and Oh, that West. is a good way to convert it to all to, to be um, one score. Yeah, well, then you get uh, 90%. So uh, you've won <laughs> me writing out writing your next out of office. Oh, I feel and, so excited. Uh, I can Thank actually you. already tell you what it's going to say. It's going to say something like, I'm Kevin King. I will be out of the office from uh, January 1st to January 5th, and I will return uh, an email response when I return to the office. I'll, you know, I'll... the best thing about that is, Mike, is it's going to be catch people completely by surprise because they're so used to my cleverness when they sort of see that droll you know, or not droll, that sort of dull, uninspired out of office message, they'll, they'll know something's up. Thank exactly, you. Exactly. Exactly. Any, we're running out of time here. Any shout outs you want to give? Um, just to my students, you know, you, you, you prepped me for a question of papers that don't get enough attention and anything written by any trainee of mine, I think never, ever, ever gets enough attention. My students, um, and my trainees are just amazing. And I, I, I'm so proud of everything that they do. And of course, I also want to um, uh, thank my big inspiration in the field, Brian Weiner. I wouldn't be here without him. Excellent. How can people reach you, Kevin? Um, they can Google my name and I'm under the third or fourth result after the football player and the magic comedian. Um, and at one point there was somebody who was convicted of murder who was also named Kevin King. That was a big, um, big quote, thing early in someone. my career. Someone quote unquote. Um, and you can also find me, um, on Twitter and blue sky. Um, just search my name. I think on uh, Twitter, I'm KM King underscore psych and on blue sky. I think I'm Kevin M King. All right, man. Thanks so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Thanks again, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked today's podcast, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, or use your good mood to initiate a drinking episode and make sure to mark it on your ecological momentary assessment. If you didn't like today's show, well, imagine the show had been done in as many different ways as you can and then see if the existing show is better than that average. I'm on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter at that is Podcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King, we'll catch you next time.
Yeah, feel free to uh, steer the conversation in whatever direction you want it to go. Sure. And I'll try to steer it back to whatever direction I want it to go. 